0: Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Feifield.
1: What's up, team? I hope you're doing just fine. My guest for this episode is Bryn Kelly. Uh, Bryn is an electricity, natural gas, and crude oil trader who has spent the majority of her career on merchant trading desks for the likes of BP, amongst others. She has also been a prop trader and has experience as a hedge fund portfolio manager also. A few of the key topics we hit on during this episode include Bryn's responsibility as head of trading desks, how she taught, trained and managed newer traders, and an overview for how Bryn trades relationships using fundamentals and macro trends, and plenty more. For many listening, much of this may not necessarily be directly applicable to your own trading, but you will get some great insight to how things work from the merchant side of things. I really hope you dig it. Please welcome an awesome guest for episode 99, Bryn Kelly let's just get started so probably the first question I'd like to ask you Bren is you know before trading came along what were you doing
2: it's a good question I obviously or maybe people don't know so it's not that obvious I did not Start or enter my, you know, start, begin my career in trading. I wish I had. I wish I had known about it when I first graduated from college with my little finance degree, but I didn't. Um, My father had been a CPA and I got my first job working for Cargill right out of college. Um, I grew up in Minnesota, went to the University of Minnesota and Cargill is, is Minnesota. So I got my first job right out of college working in, I guess, what you would call today the mid-office for um, the trading arm of Cargill, which at the time was called the Financial Markets Division. And I was you know, responsible for mark-to-market P&L and and everything that goes along, you know, with supporting a trading desk um, for a group that traded baskets of stock on the Nikkei and the Topix exchanges. Very, very manual at the time, um, but I don't want to date myself (laughs) too much. Um, And from the moment I saw what that industry was like, I knew... Th- that's what I needed to do. And I spent quite a bit of the following years of my career advancement working to position myself in a you know in a place where I could get on a trading desk, which I ultimately did thankfully.
1: Okay, yeah, and I heard you talking about this uh, briefly on Anthony Crudelli's podcast, uh, Futures Radio. And you said to him that you had to fight really hard to get onto a trading desk. Um, Tell us a bit about that. Like, how so?
2: Sure. You know, um, I guess anybody who's been, uh, you know, kind of comeuppance on a trade floor and and in the trading world understands that there is not a logical career progression from the mid-office or really any other office to the front office. You kind of... You, you, you either start, you know, in a low-rank position, work um, supporting a trading desk in what's called the front office, or, you know, you're on a different career path. So, I mean, I, I recognize that. I saw it. You know, I, I understood that was the case. So I I had to continue to look for opportunities where I felt like I worked for companies that had exposure and had trading desks and where I could excel enough and and get enough relationship with management or with the tr- head traders on the desk so that I could make a move over. and and it's not easy. Um, I went through several different companies, and of course, along the way, I'm also advancing, my career because i was young and and next thing you know i'm the controller of coke industries in their supply and trading group um you know getting a little worried that i was getting too far along in you know a, another career and you know you become kind of untouchable you know you you know when you're Like not you're too overqualified or whatever you might be labeled as to, you know, move in to start your career over. But I was persistent and I continued to make relationships with the trading desks um, and really was laser focused. And I ultimately got my break and it took, I, I think, about seven years.
1: Wow. Okay.
2: To make that happen.
1: So when you came onto this trading desk, presumably you had no or little prior experience as an actual trader. How did you learn and get to know what you were doing?
2: Yeah, let, you, you, huh. Interesting. So i I think there's a few things in the '90s, early '90s, when when I did, um, you know, kind of get my first role on a trading desk, and it was in um, the electricity. Industry, which was just deregulating and just getting started, but it was also prior to really a lot of electronic trading. So, so the understanding of of trading was a lot more logistical and um, physical. So, understanding the physical commodity that you were trading. Um, and, and I was trading commodities and energy, it was very, very much about understanding the, the commodity itself and all of the logistics associated with it. So it, the fact that I had spent so much time in and around the physical commodity helped me out a lot more then than I believe it may help today, just as the landscape, has changed to so much financial aspects to the trade itself. Um, so I really was able to transfer a lot of knowledge from that standpoint. And I really just had to learn things like execution, guts, the guts to execute, and um, the guts and, and the, and the willpower and the stamina to make a decision and take a PL hit. Those were things I hadn't been directly responsible for prior to that. Um, and, and those were things I think you either are able to do or you're not. And, and that really is a big differentiator, you know, between the smartest person in the room and a great some of the greatest traders is, you know, your ability to actually execute and, and, and live with and manage through crisis scenarios, because it's always an immediate crisis (laughs) once, once you've put risk on.
1: And was that something that came somewhat naturally to you? Or was it something that did kind of develop over those first couple of years?
2: For me, it it was like I'd come home. I mean, it was so natural to me. I was always competitive, and and I I I loved it. I loved the black and white nature of it. I was so thrilled to be gone from a career where things were based on um, nebulous items you know, um, performance reviews and, and who you knew or what you did. And it was really right on down to the black and white. And I, I just felt like that's exactly where I belonged. And I, I just, I, I was so happy.
1: (laughs) Awesome. So did you get much help from other traders on the trading desk you were a part of?
2: Yeah. I, my first, you know, when, when I got my first break, it was at a merchant, um, power and gas company in the Midwest, um, us. And since it was startup, it was very much, uh, a team that, that was navigating through this unchartered territory that had not really existed before. So it, it, it was there it wasn't like just sit yourself down at a desk and there you go. You know there was a lot more um, dependence and team reliance on strategies, trading strategies when you know when, when and a specific commodity is deregulating, there is a lot of arbitrage that is wide open if you can understand the logistics. And very early on, what our team did was surround itself with very strong logistical people. And it, we were all coming together and, and finding these opportunities. So, so from that standpoint, I, w- I was really, really lucky that I wasn't just, you know, trader number 72, here's some capital and have a good time. It was really building a business.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And, you know, during this time, was there anything which was particularly challenging for you? Hmm.
2: I, you know, the landscape did change enormously in the 10 years first in my first 10 years. And it actually has changed enormously in the next 10 or 15 years. And that's always a challenge. Um, the market went from no transparency to some technology and transparency. And, you know, I, you almost could think about it like you hear people who have worked on the floor of any exchange, quote, they'll use, you know, back in the day. And and it was one particular way. and And you made a living in a particular way based on you know the flow of information and the same thing happened you know especially in electricity but even you know in in all of the commodities there was a period of time where if you could make relationships geographically across the US you could make money and it very seems quickly now evolved into something much different where contracts were not bilaterally you know limited in the beginning you only could transact with people via a bilateral contract so it limited the amount of people who could be even playing who could show up at the table it wasn't like you just opened up an account and and posted some margin i mean you you had to negotiate with another firm's credit department and individual bilateral contracts that you were, you know, backing all of your trades with, so there were a lot less players, a lot less transparency, and and that that was that was definitely a challenge. Was was can you move from? going back to the example of the you know the floor to when it went upstairs quote unquote and and everything was electronic it it requires really a huge shift change in your skill set and and that that was um that that was that was a challenge for sure
1: okay so when you say bilateral contracts i'm not really sure what that is would you mind um, explaining that a little more
2: Sure. Yeah. That tells me how, how long, how, how much they're just, you know, that's how much it's changed. Um, So like, uh, for example, when I worked at BP um, in the nineties and, you know, counterparties were Enron and, you know, all of the other kind of trading counterparties that you can think of in natural gas and electricity, you didn't, you traded directly with each individual company. So there were voice brokers that are OTC brokers that would call and you would have a squawk box and they would make you markets, but they weren't online. Um, and, And when you hit a bid or lifted an offer, you were given the counterparty's name that you were done with. So you could transact with people in the market that you had set up a bilateral contract, meaning that we can purchase and sell to your company via our credit rating, via posting some collateral with that other counterparty. So every single credit relationship was individual. And when you were transacting, you were transacting specifically with the, um, the counterparty, not with a clearing bank. So it was, I mean, looking back now, completely inefficient, right? Because you were having to post collateral with a lot of different people. There was no margining on these contracts. Um, So there was just really a netting of purchasing and sales. And even in the very beginning days of like, for example, intercontinental exchange, when you you hit a bid or lifted an offer, your trade ticket revealed to you who your counterparty was, and it was not a clearing bank. It was a physical utility, purchasing, and there was a lot of knowledge in that. There was a lot of knowledge available once you found out what counterparty you were transacting with that that just doesn't exist today.
1: Yeah, I I had no idea. Um, (laughs) So yes, you spoke about working at BP there. I'm really keen to spend a little bit of time on that. So what exactly did you do at BP? Like what was your role there?
2: Okay so so just just to preface that with most of my career history in energy trading has been on the merchant side and BP is an example of that. So BP had a merchant trading group meaning it was unrelated to their core asset business but it certainly you know enhanced you know the, or you could consider it a diversification of of um, the business that they were in. So for me specifically, I was in their gas and power group, which was in Houston. Um, it wasn't my first merchant group that I'd been involved in, but but when I started there, they had just recently BP had just recently purchased Amoco. And and hence, that's why the office was in Houston, because Amoco had had, that's where their core business had been. And they were primarily, Amoco was in natural gas. So BP had a merchant trading group called BP Energy Company. And it was primarily electricity and natural gas trading on a speculative Nature, so it was not trading any of BP's production. Um, it was, you know, the the group didn't own on it, you know, any assets per se. Now they, they they did get involved with moving production that BP had, but it, it wasn't, um, you know, it, it really other than molecule flow, it, there wasn't a lot of proprietary information that that you had. So, it was a speculative group and, and I ran the electricity, the Eastern Electricity Desk. So, over the course of the, you know, how five, seven years that I was there, we, um, I built from two team members really up into a fully integrated, desk that consisted of real-time electricity traders all the way through to term electricity traders. And what we did was try to make money. We Essentially, I set the desk up to look like a virtual power plant. So if you don't actually own a power plant and you're not having to dispatch electricity and deal with real-time flows of electricity and moving power across the U.S. to various grids, if you have a real-time trading desk, which, which is staffed 24 hours a day, seven days a week on two shifts, you essentially can look like you have a power plant by buying and selling every hour on the hour. Um, so you're, you're basically calling utilities all around the U.S., Purchasing their excess or selling to them if they have a deficit and then sourcing it um, speculatively in, in a way, but it's via your relationships that you have across the country. I mean, you're taking price risk on an hourly basis. All the contracts are firm with liquidated damages. So, so it's very interesting. So, so I ran everything from the, you know, real time hour to hour group all the way through to supporting a marketing desk and, and, you know, taking risk out 10 to 20 years. So on the other end of the spectrum, there would be a, a marketing group, That also worked, um, you know, for this BP Energy group that would go out and meet with utilities or, you know, users, long term users of electricity and, and try to do a 10 year deal with them, sell them power for 10 years that was shaped, you know, a specific way that was different than, you know, if, if you look at uh, a Henry a NYMEX contract, right? Like if we'll take natural gas, for example, it's 10,000 MMBTUs. And even more specifically, it's 10,000 MMBTUs per day is generally the delivery at Henry Hub. But marketers will be out meeting with people across the U.S. and they might find a customer that needs six thousand in the evenings and 22,000 during the day, but you know, the option not to take any on Sundays and they come back to the trading desk and they say, I need you to give me a price on this. So of course, as a trader, you have to be out in the market. You have to know, um, what's going on what basis exists between different locations and you have to provide a 10 year non standard price that requires different volume optionality and whatever to this marketer and if the marketer goes to the customer and the customer you know accepts the deal then as the trader you now have this deal on your books and so you end up with an accumulation of non-standard deals that you have to figure out a way to hedge. Um, and when you ultimately go to delivery with them, you you know have to optimize and and figure out how to make money off of it. So there, there's it's a pretty diverse role when you're in the merchant side of the business and the hub products that are listed on the exchanges are really such a small part
1: of it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's safe to say that most of your trading there was done off the exchange, right? Um, like it was off exchange is what I mean.
2: I'm trying to think about the right way to put it. I would say that pricing and delivery of deals, once you know you take them to delivery, was um, not to or from the exchange. The exchange is certainly used as a price benchmark. So you have to be very familiar with, for example, if I was pricing a deal in the Northeast with the cost of you know pipeline capacity. In the Northeast, and how much risk you're willing to take um, on that pipeline capacity in a winter month. So there is a lot of there's a lot of pricing of deals that are off exchange, but risk is you know laid off generally at hub locations. So I don't know if it's exactly that it was so much off exchange. It's just that's only one part of it. You know, any merchant portfolio does not consist, even even a producer of any commodity, you know, they don't get the exchange price. Their wellhead or their generation point of the commodity is nowhere near where the delivery point of the exchange contract is. And so while you might, think that natural gas is three dollars at the exchange you you know you it's uh, well known that producers up in the pennsylvania area are getting a third of that because it costs them two dollars to get it to the delivery point at the exchange so everything is relative to the exchange but it doesn't you know change the complexity of the story.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So when you talk about, you know, having to actually make deals with other merchants, yeah. How long would that take you to actually put a deal together and close that deal and actually make the transaction? Like what sort of time frame are we looking at?
2: So long. So, so marketing deals can take a long time to get to the pricing of the contract. Um, From the day that a trader gives a price, that price is generally good for a few hours, a few, you know, overnight, potentially, you know, in in today's markets and in really all markets since, you know, years, you can't leave a price open. It may take six months for negotiations to lead to, you know, a price quote whether that's getting contracts in place, you know, submitting a price once and nothing happening and them calling back. But once a price is given, that price is only good for, you know, generally that day. You know, because as a trader, I I can't give someone a quote and then not know if I've, you know. I, I have any, if I need to lay off risk or not, because the minute the deal is done, it's, you know, the trader's responsibility to lay that risk off in a way that they think will make the most money for the company and then continue and continue and continue to manage that risk and optimize it.
1: Mm hmm. Okay. So this sort of thing that we're talking about here—I mean, it's—it's quite different from what we've spoken about previously on the podcast. Is this kind of the real reason why futures commodity markets exist? Uh,
2: You know, it's—I suppose it's chicken and egg, but—but the re—you know, for sure, it is the—you know, exchange contracts are price indicators, right? And if there was not a liquid, reliable, forward price indicator, it would be difficult to do long-term contracts because people would always feel like, you know, they would never pull the trigger because they wouldn't know, they feel like they had no price information. Um, And it is certainly a reason why a lot of the futures contracts move. It's always based on, I mean, sure, there's speculation day to day, but in reality, there are real consumers and real suppliers doing long-term deals in the market. There is an airline purchasing, you know, two years worth of fuel supply from a bank, let's just say and now the bank has to go out and hedge that right there is a a utility locking in their you know gas for their power generation and so they have to go out into the market then whoever sold it to them right and and lay that off so it's it's a constant push and pull of are there are were a whole bunch of Supplier deals done in the market or a whole bunch of producer deals done in the market, because of course, they're never going to be done at the same time. But generally, who those deals are done with is how you can understand, you know, what will end up showing up in the market. I mean, so many of these deals, I mean, for a long time and, and probably even still today, airlines haven't had the best credit and the best balance sheets and really even Producers, small producers, you know, it's not as if they can just go out and sell the exact price on the exchange. Uh, You know, they're delivering a product that is interruptible, right? If you're producing natural gas and you're selling it to into the market, and your well something happens to your well, I mean, you're not going to have that production, and so it's interruptible. When you're selling your product on an interruptible basis, you're not going to get as much for it because the exchange products are firm with liquidated damages, meaning that if I sell NYMEX Natural Gas Futures and I deliver on that and I, my supply gets interrupted, whoever I sold it to has the option to go in the market. Purchase supply at whatever the prevailing market price is and bill me for it. And producers are not in that business. So when we talk about producer hedging, what they're doing is selling to an intermediary that's willing to take that risk. So they're going to give them less money for their Cal 2017 product and then they're going to take what's called the firm or interruptible to not you know interruptible to firm risk and and it and there can be a lot of different you know basis in that it, it was one of the fundamentals of the you know first 3 4 years of electricity trading that that I was involved in and not just me but you know the industry you bought electricity generation from a utility on what was called non-firm and then you sold it into the firm LD liquidated damages market which is what all exchange products are and you take the risk that you'll be able to resupply it and you'll make more overall than you'll lose. But you know, people don't think of that when they talk about producers hedging. Producers just don't get to go out and sell 100% of their production into the NYMEX firm market. The, you know, they they have to sell either to a bank intermediary that will accept their C-rated credit or triple B minus credit, they'll give them a huge haircut and they'll also give them a haircut because their product is interruptible. So there's uh, you know I, I find it very interesting just listening to high- level commentary that's done on on some of price action on exchange products because that, that it's really only relative to, people that are not going to delivery or aren't, you know, are willing to take that risk, the firm to non-firm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is all very interesting and and much of it is, is quite new to me. So no, very interesting.
2: Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com chat
0: to learn more.
1: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. You know, in a number of roles that you've had over the years, I was I was snooping through your, your LinkedIn profile before we got on this call, and I noticed that you were hiring and training new employees in uh, several of your the roles you've had. Were you training traders specifically?
2: Yeah. If we're, we're going to talk about the past 20-some years in trading, then yes, it was um, any... If I ran the trading desk, um, I was responsible for the hiring and firing of everyone on my desk and that could include p l analysts so clerks that you know entered trades and and did you know that kind of thing um, to you know traders that I would bring right onto the desk so absolutely I mean as the head of the desk you're responsible for you um, take, you know, who, who, how, wherever it is that uh, experience level that you brought them in, um, you know, training them and, and, and it's a hard job, you know, you could be having your own bad day trading, but so could three of your staff and, and you have to be able to pick them up and teach them the lesson and get the most out of, you know, them regardless of, you know, what's happening in your own book. I mean, it sucks on a day if a trader comes to you and says, hey, I'm down $2 million. I mean, you know, that's part of my P&L, right? I mean, I'm the whole desk. So so, so, you have to learn the art of, na- you know, teaching somebody to navigate through a crisis and um, also determining... It if it's a fireable offense, although those are generally very clear. Um, Luckily, these days there are things like hard risk limits and volume limits um, and whatnot. And I mean, really, you almost hope someone violates something like that because then it makes it easier if you have to let them go versus if they're just kind of not very good for a while
1: okay so uh, what were some of the things that you you'd teach these people when they first came onto your desk you know let, let's presume they they don't have uh, much experience trading what were some of the first things you'd really try to drive home
2: well for junior traders um, knowing the <laughs> systems that support you know your um, the desk, I, I think for me, and it could be the way that, you know, I came up through um, my background, I, you have to know whatever system it is that is supporting the trading business. And by system, generally people refer to them as like an ETRM system, or maybe they call them your p system, you know, how are, how are trades getting captured, how how are they getting you know organized into your book your strategy? How do you know how you know to have clarity if you've had an error in that? Because I mean, of course, understanding what your position is so that you can trade it is the, the most important thing. Um, so I didn't. I personally never tolerated. People saying, "I don't, I don't know, I don't know." The system says I'm long 100, and you know they're not. You know, it, it, it's their responsibility to know what's going in and out of the system that is there to tell you how much risk you have. So, for me, those were very, very basics at the very beginning, and and for me, I, I just, I didn't tolerate people who threw their hands up about, quote-unquote, the system. Probably doesn't happen today. I don't know. Everybody knows how <laughs> how things flow. But but it still seems like people find it a mystery how a corporate ETRM system works. And they have no ability to problem solve. They're like, I don't know. The system says I'm long 50. And I, I think I'm flat. But no ability to figure out how that error could be there. I mean, these are, could be massively costly errors. So, Absolutely a hundred percent know your position and know that it's right because the amount of price movements and, and the amount of PL errors you can have if you don't know that. Um, and and maybe that seems like a funny thing to people who are maybe, you know, right now trading online with some broker and, and all of their trades are there, but in in a more dynamic scenario where there are trades and positions and their physical in nature as well, coming in from, you know, a multitude of areas, it, 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 it's a little more complicated. So, so number one, I always was a stickler about that. And then two, I mean, I, I, I guess what I really did was train people to have their opinion and, not overmanage when they're wrong. Um, it, you know, I t- teach them things that I look at, indicators that I look at, suggest, um, you know, market thoughts. But you don't want to clone of yourself. So it, you know, it's definitely about getting getting someone else's thoughts out of them and and giving them enough confidence in those thoughts. You can't really, there's no manual, you know, there's no, you just learn the commodity and you learn the flow and you learn it by sitting there and and you really learn it by, you know, your holy crap moment when you're, you know, you, you, now you're responsible.
1: So, so yeah, I mean, so you spoke about a couple things that almost frustrated you there. Um, (laughs) how many of the traders came through, like, were able to do this? Like, were there traders who just didn't get it, you got frustrated with them, and they ended up making some errors and you had to give them the boot? I mean, how many traders kind of made it? How many didn't? Like, what was, I don't know if success rate is the right word, but that's kind of what I'm getting at.
2: I don't know, actually, that I've ever looked back at it and given it a percentage number. Um, I have fired my share um, of people who weren't cutting it um, and in it I've also moved people to roles that maybe were more suitable to them um, you know there a lot of times the way a trading desk can be structured is the hierarchy seems to go from like scheduling or ticket entry or, you know, very, you know, more manual type of data collection um, roles to shorter term trading to longer term trading. And, And so many kids starting on the desk sort of thought, As soon as they were, you know, a long-term trader, then, then they were, you know, that was the right progression. And I can't tell you how many times, you know, there'd be some young trader who was responsible for just trading, you know, like one month in, in right. That was they had a short-term duration. Who believed that the longer term duration was, you know, where it was at and, you know, I'd give them a chance and you'd find out that that wasn't the case. And so a lot of times it was just educating and moving them back into the shorter term role. I always felt and tried really hard to make it known that as long as you're making money, it really doesn't matter which part of the curve you're trading you know so don't try you know to be at a different part of the curve i mean a bottom line is a bottom line but you know that that did happen a lot where people tried to come you know they wanted to come to the next table and didn't have the skill and they were either fired you know or demoted
1: That's really interesting. So why do you think it was that the the shorter term traders wanted to become longer term traders? That seems really unusual.
2: I think there is a majority of structures that can exist at companies um, where the longer term traders have exposure to more capital, have access to more capital. I mean, it just takes more capital to Commit a ten-year deal than it does to commit a one-month deal, and so the stakes can be higher as far as you know your P and L targets, and so the money, the the payouts can be hard higher. However, those are the people that also get fired more often too. I mean, you know, you you have to understand that you know the higher your P and L targets are, the first one you are out the door, but. But there are so many structures that exist in the industry where where the term traders get paid more. Um, So because they have access to more capital, but that that you know that's it's not always the case. And I think you know it. It was my responsibility to. To, uh, you know, to guide and, and to make sure that somebody who was just trading next day or next hour power um, had this, you know, same drive and understanding, you know, and access and the ability to deliver to the bottom line. Um, there are some schedule things that are crappy about the shorter term duration you have as well. So, you know, if you're working on a real-time electricity desk, you know, you're on twelve-hour shift work, so of course you'd want to get off of that, right, and move up to a day job versus working, you know, six p.m. to six a.m. four days in a row, then off three. You know, I mean, there are some schedule things, as in any, you know, sort of career advancement, right? Whereas you move up the ladder, there maybe is some more flexibility. Um, and 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 the assumption is there's more money, but I, you know, I would argue there isn't always.
1: Okay. And why do you think it was that some of the shorter term traders found it difficult to transition to more longer term trading?
2: Um, you know, the knowledge isn't necessarily transferable on the fundamentals that that make sense in the shorter term versus the fundamentals that make ter- sense in the longer term. They're just they're very different and and if i if you want to get really granular you could talk about uh, if you were thinking about electricity or even like cash natural gas right next day natural gas the fundamentals of the pipeline relationships and the capacity available and weather um is very different than the fundamentals that would drive a cal 2018 trade um you know, you're looking, you could look at interest rates in 2018. You you could be concerned with LNG. You know, you're there there's there's a different, it's it's just a different set of market influences. And and I think that can catch a lot of people making that move. They they've got their arms and and they they really are good at the fundamentals that drive the short term market. Um, and and it it it's just not the same.
1: Yeah, no that that really makes sense. Actually, that's a, that's a good answer. So, you know, bringing up to bringing us forward to current times now, you know, what's your current situation and what type of trader are you today? So,
2: having spent my almost all of my energy trading career in merchant roles, I definitely am a much more fundamental trader. In that I care and I pay attention to, and and I guess the way I trade revolves around relationships, relationships of one thing to another, um, because that's how my whole experience evolved. Whether it was the relationship of power at point A to point B, or it's all the way you know evolved to. A, a frack spread, right, or a heat rate between electricity and natural gas or, you know, LNG or, you know, gas in one point or another or, you know, as ethane factors into the picture. I really, um, my approach is that I like the bigger picture, and I'm always interested in how relationships are changing. And and I mean, I'll even call algorithmic relationships part of that. Um, so that's that's how I look at the market. I have done a couple stints at prop shops. For I, th- I don't know if it's just because that's that was not how I came up. I don't find specifically an exact technical charting exact reversal entry point scalping type of thing to be how I approach the market. But I, you know, I, there's a lot there. There's absolutely a lot there. Um, I kind of wish I maybe had a a little bit more of that, but I, you know, I can't force something that's not there. And I, I, I focus more on relationships and structure. Um, as, when I look at the market.
1: Okay, cool. Well, let's talk about that a little bit more, but just before we do like, what's your current situation? You said you've done a few stints at like prop firms and that sort of thing. And I know you recently were, uh, managing a fund at millennium partners. Um, have you since moved on from there?
2: Yeah, not by um, desire, but you know, it's what you sign up for when you sign up to be a trader. I was um, until last year. I was managing uh, was portfolio manager at Millennium Partners, which is a hedge fund in New York City, and they had started up um, or allocated um, funds towards commodity-only trading. Not that they weren't involved in commodity trading, but it was more embedded within equity groups. And I was their first electricity trader. And I would just, I guess, say that at the end of the day, it wasn't for them. Um, they Their systems they weren't geared for it. Their um, understanding of the market wasn't deep enough, you know, at all, and, and not anything. I mean, you know, they're a class organization that, you know, was trying new things, and it it wasn't. I, I would say that they weren't probably quite ready for it. And good for them for knowing that they weren't. Um, that they're they're just. It it it's one thing to have a corporate system to. Handle equities and um, debt it's another thing to have a system that can track the hourly flows of power and it and it's very complicated and and I've even written a prior to you know one of my prior um, roles I went to work for. A software company as a subject matter expert and designed from scratch an entire ETRM system just for power because it, it is that complicated to uh, model and and handle. So so you know they they gave it a shot for a year and and the the black and white world uh, you know they're just they said not for us. So so I'm back to as as most I think traders who can't, you know, it's in my DNA. Um, you know, working on, you know, sort of managing some family money and doing some of my own trading and working on a bunch of different startup ventures and and anything, you know, related really to what's happening today, especially in the deregulation of electricity. I think it's fascinating what's what's going on. And it's hard to even pick somewhere to focus. It's fascinating.
1: <laughs> now, that's excellent. Very good. So going into sort of your, your trading methods and the way you approach things, you said that there wasn't, um, I can't remember exactly the wording you used, but you said like you don't see you know, an exact entry point on a chart and that sort of thing. So how do you turn these observations and these relationships of macro trends, how do you actually turn them into actionable trade ideas? Like how do you go from having an idea and seeing something, anticipating something and then actually executing that?
2: Hmm. Tough question. So like I said, I am a student of relationships and I respect, you know, areas on a chart or sentiment and all of that stuff, but it's not like, yeah, you're right. It's not how I use to get in or get out. I find, um, a few things can tell the story pretty easily. And that is time spreads. So calendar spreads along the curve. And, and I, you know, just like you know, not you you can be right or wrong, but for me, um you could take an example of the situation this summer in the United States with natural gas and the structure of the price curve and how do you translate that into something actionable? And all summer we saw the daily cash prices exceeding. Um, Really, the balance of the month or the next, you know, the prompt futures contract, and to me that is actionable because that tells me what will happen with storage operators, and and uh, you know, uh, luckily it played out right. You the if if cash caught if if you own storage and you could either buy some natural gas in the market today that costs more than natural gas for delivery in the next futures month, you're just going to wait. And of course, this is a simplified, I mean, you know, people will call, well, you know, people have to rateably inject into storage. I understand that. But, but I, you know, there is a global macro kind of step back, you know, effect that, that the price curve can have on, what ultimately plays out in the market. And so for me, they're very obvious and, and the actual price, you know, I don't care if if the cash market is five cents over and we're talking about $10 and $10 and five cents. uh, You know, I don't really care what, the actual price of it is, even though people want to focus on that and ask about and talk about all the time. What's a good price? Do you think three fifty? Do you think natural gas will go here? Do you think crude oil will go here? I, I mean, I don't actually care. I care that the spread levels tell you what the next move is going to be, um, and and so I, I certainly like um, either trends of of relationships and spreads or um outliers especially if there are certain parts that I think will mean revert so a lot of calendar spreads can you know get pretty far from the mean um doesn't mean that you know it can't go another three standard deviation outside of it so you know but if you believe that something will mean revert you know, then, you know, you're never going to pick the exact point to get into it, but, you know, put only put enough on it then that you can, you know, stand to wait un- until that mean reversion happens. I-, I don't know if that was specific. Enough.
1: Yeah, no, I think that gives us a pretty good overview of, of how you're approaching things. Um, you know, by nature, you're, you're a longer term trader. When we talk about longer term, like, what are we, what are we referring to? Like, what's sort of, what's your average holding time for a given position?
2: It's gotten shorter. That's for sure. um, Because the markets are really different now. um, And no matter where it is in the term structure, I would say probably not more than three months because you're just not going to have enough. I mean, by then, either the spread you have on is going to delivery. Um, It's gotten a lot shorter. uh, and, And some of the moves have gotten a lot more violent definitely
1: so what do you think that is why do you think uh like you said the moves have become more violent like and what are some of the other really big changes that you've seen yourself you know having been done this for now over 20 years
2: <laughs> well i mean of course this is just my opinion but i think there is a whole generation of um well number 1 trading itself is more accessible. So the pool of players, market participants is just so much bigger than it was even 10 years ago. And you know beyond that and and we could go back to my discussion about, you know, bilateral contracts. You know this this central clearing of all contracts is not that old, you know, it's, it's relatively, uh, you know, a newer phenomenon and, you know, and Dodd-Frank kind of helped that along as well. So the, the pool of market participants is so much bigger. Um, and the transparency, the market transparency is, is also, um, it's more transparent. There's just, Everybody and their brother can see what prices are. They don't have to wait for the newspaper to be printed or not have, you know, access to something online. So there, there's a lot more participants. There's a lot more participants with shorter durations. And so, um, you know, they can get pushed in and out quicker um, with, you know, less capital that that they're applying towards their trades um, and I mean, high frequency trading, or I, I don't even know what you call it, but I'll, I'll call it algorithmic trading is, it, is really where it's at. And, and I'm not saying that for, like, for me personally, but it, if you could imagine when there were market makers on the floor of an exchange before we went to the decimal system and so the bit you know it was like a a half by a quarter and and the spread between you know the being a market maker was so great and lucrative that that's all you had to do i'm that exists today for algorithms and it is being exploited until it's not there anymore and and what i mean by that is relationships that exist between when people start buying soybeans and then how that ultimately flows through to ethanol or, you know, I'm not even using that far reaching of of an example, but it's all the psychology of all of that and and the ability to execute those relationships faster and faster and faster is what's happening now. So so it's it it's an amazing money maker for those who are buying tick data and developing relationships and and running you know machines and i don't mean big huge ones that are pushing it around but you know you add a psychology component into it and you know we've just taken the the fraction system on the floor before decimals to a new level and 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 that's that that's where i think it's coming from I'm not saying I'm not making a judgment at all, but I think, you know, you're, you can't be naive and not understand, which, you know, really kind of goes back to what I like best is understanding relationships. It's just that people are doing it using computers at, you know, levels that are beyond me.
1: Yeah. And do you think this has made it somewhat more difficult to be a fundamentally driven trader?
2: It's made it more difficult to be a fundamental trader if you don't have enough capital.
1: And what do you mean by that?
2: There are a lot of scenarios in which um, the fundamentals will ultimately win out, I suppose. Is that the right word to use? Um, but a lot that can happen until that does. And, and if you don't have enough capital or enough VAR um, and you're constantly getting chopped and stopped out, and until your fundamental play happens, you know we can let, let's say the deviations from the mean have gotten bigger, and so if if you have a ten million dollar var and and you can ride, you know that fifty million dollar PL swing, or you can ride that until you come back and and make you know your money instead of having to stop out and then try to get re. in I mean, then you're just chopping up your capital. The whole way, so so the tolerance to um, you know take take those hits, and and I don't I don't think there's as many players as there used to be that can do that, or it's very concentrated. It's very very concentrated, and even hedge fund structures aren't as much like they were in that they silo out allocations of funds. So that any one group may not have, you know, as a whole, it's a lot of money, but individually, um, risk limits, you know, they keep being parsed down further and further. And so, you know, I mean, a simple thing as a front month spread, like, you know, December, January, so many players have to get out of that spread before even the last day in futures because of, you know, T plus one, you know, margining limits and whatnot. And, you know, if you don't have enough capital to post it or you can't risk making or taking physical delivery, the amount of players that can actually take advantage of the real fundamental um, story playing out is smaller. So there's just noise on the intraday.
1: Yeah. Now, this is a question that I'm pretty interested to hear your response to. Um, and I'm not quite sure what the best way to to perhaps frame it is, but you know, you've spent your entire career pretty much focusing on this sector. How well would you say you can actually read the market? Like, are you often surprised by certain things that happen, which are opposite of what you'd anticipated, or does something like that really happen now?
2: I, I can say that I'm not surprised, but I wouldn't want anyone to mistake that for that. I get it right. Um, I, I could tell you, I was more surprised in, I guess, was it the end of 2014 when crude was trading $80, you know, $90 and the fundamental nonsense and stories and whatnot that went on when for, for sure there was n- no other path other than 30 bucks you know the calendar spreads told you that everything did and yet so so what can surprise me still is uh, the 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 interpretation the story the blinders that the signals that that people are unwilling to pay attention to Um, That can surprise me, you know, or now after what, a year and a half, two years of markets cratering, you know, and energy, uh, everybody still wants to be on the story of full storage you know, it's like, move on. There's, yeah, that's, but, but full storage after two years, is not the same story, right. As after people have had to try to cut and and do this and that. So I guess it does. Yeah. I guess what is continues to amaze me is interpretation of, of the story from the market. But I, but I don't, I, I, I'm certainly not saying that in a way that I'm, you know, I, that means I get it right. You know, it's just, um, the fundamental story is pretty, can be pretty obvious, but you know, you, you can't trade fundamentally alone either that you'd get killed.
1: Of course. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's a good response. So Bren, I'd just like to ask you a couple more, I guess, sort of more general questions, which might be, uh, really helpful for, anyone who's listening to this podcast, you know, anyone who might be an independent trader who is sort of just coming into things like, what would you say to someone who is entering this business of trading? What would you say to them to ensure that they have realistic expectations?
2: Okay, good one. So, and and I heard you say independent. So at some levels, are you talking about someone who might be just
1: trading from home? Let's say that
2: trading on their own. Um, okay. So, so I've said this before and I'll say it again. You have to decide if it's, if you're trading, you know, from on your own, if it's your hobby or your actual business, because a lot of people have a hobby of, you know, restoring cars or, you know, whatever it might be, but there is no chance they could ever make a living at it because it would take marketing and buying, you know, setting up a shingle and, advertising and blah, blah blah you get this you get the gist right so i mean do not for one minute you know mis misinter- you know you, you decide is it a hobby or if it's a an actual business and and you need to check yourself all the time if you're deciding that it's a business and you know not everybody makes it in a startup business it, you know all all across the world people try to start up a business and they don't make it if once you do that, you can't just, oh, that's not the right word. I would recommend don't spend your whole time, especially if, if, if it's your kind of first career, just trading on your own. You, you, you gotta get, is step in and out of things and experiences throughout it. So, so go work for some place for a while, you know, and then maybe do it on your own. You, you, you will not believe the different perspectives that you'll get and how much it will evolve over the years. It, it will blow your mind, what you think, you know, and, and what you can learn. And I, I just, I wouldn't, I would never limit myself to just, you know, trying to master a skill, you know, on your sitting alone and, and banging it out. It's no fun and, and it's not going to lead to a very well-rounded person go do, other jobs within the trading world, uh, you know, wh- whatever that looks like, right? Work at a broker desk for a while, go, you know, be an analyst for a bank, in and out. Uh, if you do a full time, you do a part time, you got to have more, you got to continue to get other experience or push yourself, put, you know, take classes, do, but don't assume that it's as one dimensional as you think it is, whatever that dimension is, c- because it never is. It's never that one dimensional.
1: So that's really something you you do strongly encourage is that, you know, someone does try to get some sort of job related to trading.
2: Well, and maybe I'm old school when I say job. I mean, maybe it is that you can get that perspective and knowledge other ways, right? Through social media or something. I mean, you know, maybe I'm just too old school, but, you know, don't just align yourself with people doing the exact same thing that you are. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, certainly you want that, but, you know, push the dimensions hard.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. And when you say you've got to decide whether you want trading to be a hobby or a business, for anyone who might not quite understand what you're saying there, how would you differentiate those two things?
2: So uh, trading hobby is, you know, you're you're not focusing on, you know, as much attention on it as you would a full-time job. You know, I, I I like seeing people say, oh, I'm trading. And so I can go out on my sailboat or go do this in the afternoon or, or do that. You know, I don't know any other startup business owners that do that. I don't know someone that's started up a restaurant or opened up, you know, uh, I, you know, some app start, I, you know, whatever the startup Silicon Valley things are. I mean, I don't know anybody that's like, you know, brags that they can do it for two hours in the morning and then move on. Um, a business is a business and you are, you know, devoting your endeavors to that 60 hours a week, 70 hours a week. And, and you're not, Putting bad trades off a side, you know, in another account. I mean, you, you have to hold yourself accountable and you have to be constantly expanding your business. So, that I, you know, in no way, shape, or form do I like comparison. You know, it, it if it's a business, it's a business and everybody knows what a business means.
1: Yeah. I really like how you talk about this as a business. Like a lot of people say you got to treat trading like a business, but you're really sort of saying that trading is a business. You know what I mean? Like even if you are an independent trader, you need to treat it as though you're actually, here you are, you're starting a new business and you've got to run it like a business. So
2: you got to run it. That's right. Absolutely. And, and you business plan, you know, sales techniques, they all apply. They all apply. Not that you're selling things so that, you know, some other, but maybe you should be. Maybe you should be also thinking about honing a talent that you could turn into something sellable based on your information, you know, that you're getting and trading. I mean, it's just not swatting the market around on the screen a few hours a day and then going, uh, but I'm sure people are going to laugh at that and say, oh, that's what I do. It's so great. I, I mean, I just wouldn't say that that's a majority
1: <laughs> of people. But And what if it's not feasible for someone to... To put in, like you said, they're sixty hours a week into their trading business uh, because you know they're just not that profitable as a trader to be able to, you know, that they need to have some income to you know support their day to day living. Yep. Yep. What what tips or pointers would you have for someone in that position just to make things a bit more feasible?
2: Well, I mean, if we're going back to the hobby scenario, right? I mean, you you may like. To refurbish cars in your spare time, but you—it's not—you can't quit your full-time job for that, right? But you can still refurbish cars. Um, you know, I think y- you know if you want to allocate money towards something that you enjoy, which is you know looking at investments, that's a good hobby. If you want to progress towards a career. As a trader, then apply for a job involved somehow. Um, so, because it, if if that's the thing you need, right, an income, then go be, you know, uh, a. <laughs> Please, I'm just using examples. I don't mean these, but right. Like a clerk on a desk or an analyst or intern for something, you know, and, uh, you know, and join an investors club, something right. I mean, if if that's what you're trying to progress to, then, then, you know, work your way into it just as you would try to work in your way into it from any hobby that you had that you were trying to turn into something you wanted to make a living off of. I, I, I just, yeah, take it take a take a serious road towards it. Right. I mean, you, anybody could imagine what they might do if in any other business they were trying to leave their current job or to, you know, move towards full time. And there's a lot of preparation that goes into that.
1: Well, Bryn, let's leave it at that. I just want to say big thanks for doing this. I mean, I've really enjoyed it. This has been very good. So where's the best place listeners can go to find out more about you?
2: Well, I'm on Twitter. I think that's where a lot of people find me, at Bryn and Rick, B-R-Y-N-N-E-A-N-D-R-I-C. Or, yeah, that's a that's that's great place Twitter. to find me. Hi, well, I mean, you can check out my LinkedIn, but yeah, I'm on Twitter um, at the moment. The only time in my career where I have been able to use Twitter, um, you know, when I've never been allowed based on corporate Um, employment to actually speak via Twitter and I'm just taking full advantage of it and and trying to get my market point of my my market research style out there.
1: (laughs) That's very good. So at Bryn and Rick is your Twitter handle. Anyone listening, go follow Bryn on Twitter. And Bryn, I just want to say, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thank you very much.
2: Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thanks a lot.